Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sometimes, and you don't need me to tell you this, life becomes too much. Things get too weird. There's too much pressure, too many bad decisions, too many wrong choices. The uncertainty builds. And then you just kind of lose it. We lose the plot, go off the rails, hit the ditch, blow a gasket, and generally freak out. Sometimes these incidents are fueled by drugs, alcohol, and mental illness. Other times it's the body and brain's way of saying, thanks a lot, but I've had enough for now. I'm just going to go over here and have me a little breakdown. Creative types can be especially vulnerable to these problems. Maybe it's because they're wired differently or they've developed some bad self-destructive habits that are tolerated or even encouraged by those around them. And because they live in a bubble, they don't exactly know what normal is. The results can be scary. And if we don't know the backstory to these breakdowns and freakouts, it's very hard to help these people in their time of need. But the more we understand how and why people find themselves in these situations, the more we can help and the more we can understand. And maybe the more we can learn to cope with life ourselves. This is Musicians Who Lost It, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. I was in my room, and I was just like staring at the wall, thinking about everything. Then again, I was thinking about nothing. And then my mom came in, and I didn't even know she was there. She called my name, and I didn't hear her, and then she started screaming, Mike, Mike! One of the greatest punk songs about those times when you feel that you're losing your mind. That's Suicidal Tendencies from 1983 with Institutionalized. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a program I call Musicians Who Lost It. Once again, let me be clear, we are not making fun of anyone. Having a freakout, a panic attack, or a breakdown is a serious matter. We hear stories about musicians suffering through these things all the time. But if we study their predicaments, we can learn what sets people off down these paths and perhaps find ways of dealing with similar triggers for those we know, and even for ourselves. So I've assembled another list of artists who have found themselves in some kind of trouble because their lives have been derailed for one reason or another. And we'll begin with Jazz Coleman. Fans of old-school alternative will know about Killing Joke, a very heavy post-punk group out of England who started releasing records in 1980. Among the band's members are Youth, the ultra-successful record producer, drummer Martin Atkins, the ultra-successful member of a series of industrial bands, and jazz, the singer. Killing Joke has been a big influence on Tool, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, both Nirvana and the Foo Fighters, Jane's Addiction, Marilyn Manson, and Soundgarden. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin is also a massive fan. In addition to contributing vocals and keyboards to Killing Joke, jazz is an author, he's a public speaker, an environmental activist, and an award-winning composer of soundtracks and various orchestral pieces. Now, things are good now, but in February 1982, everything got a little weird. After a gig, he announced he was quitting Killing Joke and moving to Iceland. Well, why? Well, he was positive that the apocalypse was nigh. Iceland, he reckoned, was the safest place to ride things out. He knew this because he had a fascination with the occult and grew paranoid after investigating various conspiracy theories about the end of the world. His argument must have been very convincing because shortly after he left for Iceland, guitarist Jordy Walker joined him. But then the apocalypse didn't happen. And after spending time helping various people within the Icelandic rock scene and forming a band they called Niceland, Jazz and Jordy returned to England. 
And that wasn't the only AWOL situation. In July 2012, he just disappeared. Jazz seemed angry that Killing Joke was going on tour with the cult, and he didn't want to have anything to do with the road trip or the band. There was a scathing Facebook post about the subject. He was eventually found about a month later, living what he described as a nomadic existence in the Western Sahara. And that Facebook post? No, no, he says, I was an imposter. Killing Joke, featuring the sometimes odd, sometimes paranoid, and often brilliant Jazz Coleman on vocals. The next person I want to talk about is Depeche Mode frontman Dave Gunn. In the early 1990s, he was in a terrible situation. Yes, Depeche Mode was hugely successful, selling millions of albums and concert tickets. But Dave just wasn't equipped to handle that. He had money, he had enablers, and he had addictions. So, not a good combination. The worst period for Dave was during the era of the Violator album in the early 90s. That tour was one endless party. And by the time it ended, it was obvious to everyone close to the band that Dave was ready to crack. He was often angry and irritable. And he couldn't even go home. Dave had already moved twice because he kept waking up to find Depeche Mode fans singing on his front lawn. And one kid went so far as to hire a private detective to find Dave's address by tracking him from the recording studio to his house. While the rest of the band scattered to spend time with their families, Dave went a little nuts. He and his wife, Joanne, had known each other since they were teenagers. They were married in the mid-80s and had a young son named Jack. But the relationship had been in trouble for a couple of years. Dave almost never saw Joanne and five-year-old Jack. Well, didn't matter. Dave had some kind of personal crisis and bolted for Los Angeles where he let loose. Depressed and confused, he got involved with Teresa Conway, Depeche Mode's former press officer. That relationship resulted in a baby daughter. Dave divorced Joanne and married Teresa at the Graceland Chapel in Las Vegas. The music was provided by an Elvis impersonator. The rock god thing also got worse, especially when it came to drugs and alcohol. But by the time Depeche Mode was ready to release their next album, he kind of seemed to have things under control. The marriage with Teresa seemed to have pulled him back from the brink. But then came the Songs of Faith and Devotion tour, the stories of decadence were so intense that it's still hard to find out what really happened. We know that there were at least two arrests. Martin Gore was arrested in Denver after insisting on playing very loud music in his hotel room at four in the morning. And Dave and the band's road manager were arrested after fighting with a security guard at a hotel in Quebec City. Dave had totally embraced the rock god thing by this point. We saw changes in hairstyle, more tattoos, including one on his shoulder blades that took 10 painful hours. We didn't see the booze and drugs. He had started using heroin in about 1991, and two years later, he was a full-blown addict. Living in L.A. was the worst thing for him. Drugs were always available, especially after his second wife introduced him to the Jane's Addiction crowd. He and Teresa were rock and roll soulmates, living out the fantasy and not thinking of the consequences. And one of their favorite wedding presents just happened to be a big lump of black tar heroin. It got so bad that he would spend days in his hotel room banging heroin into his veins. There was even an occasion in New Orleans where Dave couldn't do the encore because between the last song and the time he was supposed to go on stage for the encore, he OD'd and paramedics had to be called. 
There's a story that Dave demanded that Primal Scream get the opening slot on the tour because he knew they liked to party like he did. But the story goes that Primal Scream was so shocked by what they saw, they gave up drugs entirely. And if you know anything about that band's drug history, you'll know that that's quite a statement. The tour employed 100 people, including a full-time psychiatrist and a guy whose job it was to buy drugs. Everyone lost it on that tour. Martin Gore had two grand mal seizures as well as innumerable panic attacks. Andrew Fletcher had a mental breakdown that was so bad that doctors thought at first he had a brain tumor. Keyboardist Alan Wilder quit. And Dave was a total mess. Heroin was always available, and it became as essential as drinking water. He grew paranoid and carried a gun, even just to get from the house to the mailbox. He remembers one time when he watched the Weather Channel for 24 straight hours. He painted the walls and the floor black, and he started talking to his collection of stuffed animals, which was okay until they started talking back. Oh, he tried rehab. There was a fancy clinic in the Arizona desert. But when he checked out on August 27th, 1995, and returned to his house, he found that it had been completely looted, burgled. So that's when he loaded up on smack and checked into the Sunset Marquee. And while looking in the bathroom mirror at the hotel, slashing his wrists suddenly seemed like a really good idea. When he woke up in the psychiatric ward, all he could think about was getting high again. And who cares if a suicide attempt was a felony in California? Later, he tried to hang himself in his bathroom, but that didn't work either. Then came May 27th, 1996. After flying back to L.A. after the Sister of Night sessions, he went to a party and then checked in at the Sunset Marquee again. But after injecting a mixture of heroin and cocaine, he suffered a massive overdose. At 1.15 a.m. on the 28th, somebody, we don't know who, called 911. And when the paramedics arrived, they thought they had lost Dave. He was clinically dead for two minutes, full cardiac arrest. When he was released from the hospital and released from jail on drug charges, he went right back to the smack. But this time, there was no buzz. There was nothing. And that's when Dave checked himself into the Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey, California. That was the same place that tried to straighten out Kurt Cobain the week before he died. In Dave's case, though, it seemed to have worked. He took accountability for everything that he'd done to himself and the people around him. And after that, he sobered up, cleaned up, and went straight. So, talk about dodging bullets. Try walking in my shoes. Try walking in my shoes. You stumbled in my footsteps. More stories of stars that have lost it in a moment. This is the second half of a program that details the circumstances under which some musicians completely lost the plot in their careers and their lives. Let's go through a few more stories. Chris Kirkwood founded the Meat Puppets with his brother Kurt in 1980. By the end of the 90s, he was a serious heroin addict, even after his wife died of an OD in 1998. In 2003, Chris went to the post office, got into a fight with an old lady, and ended up being clubbed by a security guard. When he got up and tried to run, the guard shot him. After time in the hospital, he spent 21 months in prison. He's been clean and sober ever since. Nick Oliveri, founding member of Queens of the Stone Age, was always volatile. So nuts that even the hard-partying Josh Homme couldn't take it anymore and fired his best friend from the band. In July 2011, there was some kind of domestic dispute at Nick's home in Hollywood. 
Cops were called when they heard sounds of a disturbance. A full SWAT team was dispatched late in the afternoon, which was the start of a five-hour standoff that didn't end until 10.30 that night. When Nick surrendered, cops found a loaded rifle. He was taken in on domestic violence charges. And speaking of guys who go to extremes, there's Al Jorgensen of Ministry. He started smoking at 10 and was doing a pack a day by the time he was 15. Then he became a heavy coke and heroin guy. And he lived with LSD hero Timothy Leary for two years. Al says he worked as Leary's human guinea pig. I can't even imagine what that means. He somehow got mixed up with director Stanley Kubrick, who wanted him to write music for a new film he was going to call AI. So, yeah, Kubrick was a fan of ministry. But Jorgensen kept saying that AI stood for anal intruder and that it should be a porn film. So after Kubrick died and Steven Spielberg was called in to clean things up, he had to step in and sort things out with that. Al Jorgensen stole drugs from Courtney Love. He punched out R. Kelly for doing something that freaked out his daughter. He attacked Metallica with some vegetables. He produced a vocal session for Limp Bizkit's Fred Durst, insisting that Fred wear nothing but a cowboy hat. He blew up Ministry's tour bus with a giant firework that he bought from a homeless guy. And when he was invited to the Grammys, he was kicked out for screaming at Beyonce. Okay, I'm not done. He OD'd New Year's Eve 1992 and was clinically dead for a while. Al ended up with hep C from a contaminated needle. After injecting a toe so much, it turned gangrenous, and he had to have it amputated. He almost lost an arm when he was bitten by a spider. Plus, there was lots of crack and ketamine and meth. So, what got Al to stop? Ulcers in his gastrointestinal tract exploded, resulting in the loss of 65% of his blood. That led to another clinical death. I ended up backstage with Al at Lollapalooza in 1992, and he made me drink from a bottle of Bushmills whiskey that had dropped on the pavement. The neck was all broken and jagged, and but he threatened me with physical harm if I didn't take a swig. I learned later that Al liked to put a dollop of acid in his Bushmills to create what he called a party in a bottle. Fortunately, it did not happen that day. Al is now clean, I guess, but he still gets in trouble. He was in a bar once where a bunch of admiring bikers kept buying him shots, but because Al was straight and sober, not to mention without most of his liver, he didn't drink them. So the bikers got insulted and a fight started. Here's a song that Al and Ministry did with Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers. Gibby was so high the entire time that the only thing he could do is scream stuff through a megaphone, and then he fell off his stool. It took Al two weeks to edit all those vocal tracks into something he could use for this song. Ministry, featuring Al Jorgensen, a guy who has been off the rails most of his life. Another guy who really lost his way was John Frusciante of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And there will be a segue from Al Jorgensen into this. Stand by. John joined the Chili Peppers when he was barely 20, and it wasn't long before he got very, very deep into drugs. First, a lot of pot, and then second, a lot of heroin. He started hearing voices while the Chili's were on tour behind the Blood Sugar Sex Magic album. You're not going to make it, the voices said. You have to leave the band now. So while the band was in Japan, 
John quit and went back to California where he started doing heroin full time and started to use the drugs to treat his deepening depression. I quote, I was very sad and I was always happy when I was on drugs. Therefore, I should be on drugs all the time. I was never guilty. I was always proud to be an addict. He had a lot of drug buddies back then, too, including the soon-to-be-dead actor River Phoenix and Al Jorgensen. Again, hold that thought. John's not a big guy to begin with, but on heroin, he was reduced to a skeleton. He ended up with a blood infection. Needle marks turned into abscesses. He started scrawling graffiti all over the walls of his house. And after about three years of being holed up alone, the house burned down, destroying his collection of vintage guitars. In 1997, he released an album entitled Smile from the Streets You Hold, and the opening track is called Enter a uh, Ah. Uh. Okay, this is this is not normal. Okay, that, that goes on for eight minutes. And looking back, John admits that this record was just a way for him to raise drug money. He's since had it withdrawn from sale, but the uh, internet, of course, is forever. In 1996, John quit heroin cold turkey. So that's the good news. The bad news is that he was deep into crack. The good news is that he was persuaded to go into rehab. The bad news is that his teeth were so rotten that he risked coming down with a lethal oral infection. And the only thing that saved him was pulling his remaining teeth and getting dental implants. And the only thing that saved his blood were skin grafts to fix all those abscesses. This is about when he rejoined the Chili Peppers. And as far as we know, he's been clean and sober since late 1998. Now back to John and Al Jorgensen. You may know that when you go into the studio, all the different parts, all the instruments and vocals are each recorded separately. And once everything is recorded, you need to mix all the individual parts into something that sounds good. This mixing stage of the album process is an art. You have to balance the volume of all the little bits into a pleasing form. Everyone who mixes albums has their own way of doing things. Al Jorgensen was asked to come up with a new mix of Give It Away, the big hit from Blood Sugar Sex Magic, so he joined John in the studio. The story is that Al brought a chicken with him and let the chicken wander all over the mixing board. Then he blew pot smoke in the chicken's face, making the chicken very stoned. From that point on, wherever the chicken pooped, Al made an adjustment to the mix. This is that remix. The remix that may have been assisted by a stoned pooping chicken, courtesy of Al Jorgensen and John Frusciante. Two guys that were definitely badly lost for a long, long time. A final few such stories when we return. <laughs> Here are a few more alt-rockers who have issues. Benjamin Burley of the band Breaking Benjamin suffers from a number of phobias. He has a terrible, terrible fear of flying, something that has held the band back from touring internationally. The U.S. and Canada, fine, but Europe and anywhere else? Well, if he can't take a bus, he's not going. Ben also has issues with hypochondria and has a fear of the dark. He's also a recovering alcoholic. His drinking issues were exacerbated by something called Renke-Korsakoff syndrome, 
which can affect your eyesight, your memory, your emotional state, and your balance. Wes Scantlin, the leader of Puddle of Mud, seems to lose it on a regular basis. Here's a list of his issues. Multiple charges of domestic violence. He was banned from Graceland when he dove into Elvis's swimming pool. Possession of cocaine. He had an issue with his neighbor, so he took a circular saw to the guy's patio and a sledgehammer to a brick wall. That got him arrested for vandalism. The IRS has gone after him for unpaid taxes. American Express went after him for not paying his credit card bills. The bank foreclosed on his house because he was so far behind with his mortgage. And then he went back and destroyed stuff inside the house after it was taken away from him. And Wes has a thing for getting in trouble with airlines and at airports. On September 4th of 2012, Wes was on an American Airlines flight from Boston to L.A. when there was a dispute with a flight attendant over alcohol. That forced an emergency landing in Austin, Texas, where he was promptly arrested. In early 2015, he was at Denver International Airport and decided to ride the baggage carousel, which, of course, took him around into a restricted area. Later that year, he was arrested for disorderly conduct at the airport in Milwaukee. In 2016, he was denied boarding of a flight to Louisville, Kentucky, because he was so drunk. And in 2017, he was arrested at LAX for trying to board a flight with a BB gun. He's been banned from the airport unless he's traveling for work. Uh, what else? Oh, the drunken police chase where he reached speeds of over 100 miles an hour. That was in 2015. Another DUI that summer. Neighbors called the cops when they thought they spotted him putting a bomb in his car. It was fake, but it was pretty convincing. And the bomb squad was called in and four buildings were evacuated. So, uh... Yeah, life has been very, very blurry for Wes. Not to mention the other members of Puddle of Mud. Finally, here's the story of the time Billy Joe Armstrong had a serious, serious meltdown. On September 21st, 2012, Green Day was scheduled to perform at the iHeart Radio Festival at the MGM Grand Arena in Las Vegas, and Billy Joe was blackout drunk. The band got through most of their set, but then Billy Joe became very annoyed when a blinking light signaled that their time was up, right in the middle of a rendition of Basket Case. Uh, somehow appropriate. It was a busy lineup, so each act only had so much time and had been asked to stick to their time slots. Well... Armstrong lost it, screaming obscenities at the crowd and the stage crew and smashing his guitar. Punk rock behavior or an actual problem? Well, it was definitely the latter. Green Day had been working nonstop for years, and the workload and the pressure had taken its toll. Billy Joe had been a very high-functioning addict since at least 1997. Things seemed to be together on the outside, but he says, the other part of my life was falling apart slowly. My foundation was cracked. Mike Durant and Trey Cool saw it. The meltdown was public, but there had been other behind-the-scenes meltdowns dating back to at least 2009. In 2011, he drank so much at a gig in New York City that he woke up in a park. Mike and Trey laid it out. We're not playing with you anymore until you get fixed. Billy Joe ended up in rehab two days after that onstage incident in Las Vegas, but the future of Green Day was really, really cloudy at the time. Mike sent letters. One read, If we make it through this and we get back together... We're either going to be stronger than ever, or we're not going to be doing this. Billy Joe called his time in rehab gruesome as he went through substance withdrawal. In addition to alcohol, prescription drugs were a problem. 
He'd been taking a cocktail of pills for anxiety and insomnia. Pills in the morning for one thing, pills throughout the day for something else, and then pills at night for yet another issue. He says he carried around so many pills that his backpack sounded like a baby rattle. It took months for Billy Joe to dry out, clean up, and get healthy. All remaining dates for 2012 were canceled, and so were shows in early 2013. Billy Joe says he still has his urges, but he's managed to keep everything under control. Billy Joe emerged from the ordeal in March of 2013, and as far as we know, he's been able to keep it together ever since. The list of musicians who have lost it goes on and on and on. Here are a few more examples. Ozzy Osbourne, snorting ants and also licking up his own urine. Euronymous, the lead singer of the black metal band Mayhem, who murdered a bandmate and then ate part of his brain. Drummer Jim Gordon co-wrote Layla with Eric Clapton and Derek and the Dominoes and then killed his mother with a hammer. Keith Moon of The Who, he did all kinds of weird things, like walking through a Jewish neighborhood in London while dressed as a Nazi. There's famed Jamaican producer Lee Scratch Perry, who has been known to baptize people with a garden hose and also to worship bananas. Oh, and then there was the time he deliberately burned down his recording studio. Marilyn Manson, who's been known for many weird things, including, allegedly, smoking drugs that had been cut with human remains. Oh, and Keith Richards snorted his dead father's ashes. That's apparently true. Pete Doherty of the British band The Libertines. Drugs, Grand Theft Auto, at least one hit and run. And he enraged animal lovers when he was pictured trying to get his cat to inhale something out of a crack pipe. In 2018, supposedly clean and sober, he got hungry and decided to take on a breakfast challenge where he ate four eggs, four strips of bacon, four sausages, an order of fries, hash browns, baked beans, mushrooms, something called bubble and squeak, which consists of potato and cabbage fried together, and two thick slices of toast. He ate all that in 19 minutes and 30 seconds. And Scott Weiland, so many DUIs. And then there was the time in 1998 when he was arrested trying to buy crack while dressed as a pimp. You don't have to be weird to be a rock star, but sometimes it just seems to come with the territory. You can get this and hundreds of other ongoing history programs as podcasts. Just download and go from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other on-demand audio platforms. And please rate and recommend if you can. We can make contact through my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day with music news and information. And you can also get the free daily newsletter, which keeps you abreast of everything. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And should you need to reach me via email, use alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 